Uh, as you guys know, this month we've been uh, focusing on the issue of malaria. Remember last month we were talking about water in El Salvador. We were able to get water to, to those villages. And the, the month before we were talking about the inner city and we gave like $100,000 to inner city ministry. This month we've been talking about malaria and what we've been doing is that we've been using local churches in other countries and they have been distributing mosquito nets that we bought and shipped over to them and then one of the places in Africa actually made a video showing us where our mosquito nets went and uh, sent it back to us so we can see where it went so uh, just watch the screen Kanisa <laughs> It's a pleasure for us today to, to be part of this remote community, to be able to preach the gospel and also distribute the mosquito net and give a, a practical example of God's love. The good thing so far, as we've seen this community program, they are receptive to the community and they are receptive to the gospel. The church has been able to mobilize a team of 40 volunteers who are willing to preach the gospel and who are willing to train the community about malaria and the mosquito net use. This village has been changed today because um, the people are amazed at what how church members can be involved with mosquito nets and, and, and visit home by home. It's the first project I've received where people come to their homes to, to give a message to them but also do something about their needs. Agnes, she's so grateful for the net that she has received, and she's already a Christian, so we're sharing the brotherly love with her. mosquito nets to the homes. We had church volunteers trained about how malaria is treated at home, how it is prevented, uh, the role of the mosquito net in preventing malaria, and the role of the church in reaching out to its communities. These are among the 40 volunteers from Agape Christian Church and they are trying to put up a mosquito net for this elderly man and illustrating to him how the mosquito net works and how it can be used during night.
thank you to Cornerstone Church, uh, Brother Tim Quick, Tim Hardy, Jennifer Lee, and all the brethren out there that have stood with us in this project. Uh, this is our pilot project for Church to Church Malaria Initiative. So what we can say is thank you to uh, all the churches out there in the U.S. and all over the world supporting the fight against malaria. It's cool, isn't it? I think it's so bizarre how like the body of Christ can interact with each other like all around the world now and that we could send out these mosquito nets and then get a video back a few weeks later of them showing everything. In fact, okay, a week and a half ago, I'm in Seoul, Korea, and total strangers living there in Korea come up to me when they find out who I am. And you know what they ask me? How's the Tierra Hada property? I had several people ask. I mean, it's funny hearing them try to say Tierra Rajada. But, but beyond that, it was like, how in the world? What are you talking about? And they go, oh, we listen to your podcast. And, uh, and, and it's just so weird to hear these Koreans coming and wanting to know what's going on with the property. Because they go, we've been praying for you guys. We've been praying for this property, praying for the meetings. We know a meeting was coming up. And, and it's like all this stuff. And, and to me, it's just so cool that we can be working with churches in Africa, churches in India, churches in Korea that are asking about us as well. And uh, so just to clarify any confusion on the Herahop property for you guys and, and for you watching in Seoul. Um, uh, we have a meeting coming up, a hearing coming up in December that's going to be with the Board of Supervisors, and that's kind of the big meeting. This is it. Um, and so we'll be praying for that. I believe it's on December 9th. I'll give you details on that. Um, but I'm optimistic about it. The, the attorneys are optimistic about it. It still looks good, um, despite what the Planning Commission um, uh, disapproval of it. Uh, these are the guys that really make the decision, the Board of Supervisors. So pray for that. And at the same time, also understand that with this situation, every other situation, we have a bigger responsibility in the way that we deal with things and the peace that we have. I can honestly say, even though we've been working on this project for two years, it's something I've prayed about and something that come before the Lord and say, you know what? I want you to bring glory to yourself through this. So however you do that, that's up to you. But here's what we're going to pursue. Here's how we're going to go unless you turn us a different direction. And so once you pray that way, the Bible says then you, you, you're not supposed to be anxious about anything. Now you're supposed to have that peace knowing that, okay, well, God heard that prayer and he's in control. So whatever happens in December is fine. It's his will. It's his desire. We do our best and then the rest is in his hands. And, and that's the way we need to deal with everything in life. Because if we don't, we're going to go nuts. I, I mean, is it just me or does it just seem like the world is crazier than it's ever been right now? You know, like I don't remember. I mean, I'm 41 years old. I don't remember a time in my life that the world was this crazy and on edge and everyone's just... Uh, for example, my wife was telling me she was driving up Sycamore the other day, and right there in Cochrane, there's a bunch of yes on eight people, right? Then she drives back an hour later, and there's yes on one side and no on the other, you know, yelling at each other. And then she, later on, later on, my assistant said she went up, and it was just no on eight people. And then she went back later, and there were no one-eight people in one corner. Then in the other corner, there was a guy dressed up like Satan with a 666 sign. <laughs> what in the world is going on? Like, people, and they're just going nuts. And, and what do we do? How do we live in this time when everyone is stressed about the economy, the elections, the propositions, and everyone just seems on edge and you just want to avoid certain topics, this and that. My, my wife said that as she was driving and the no one eight people were screaming and everything else, she decided to stop and pull over and just start talking to the people. And she just went up to one of them and said, hey, just curious, you know, earlier today I saw some yes on eight people, and uh, how did those people treat you? And this, this girl goes, yeah, we, we, you know, we drove them out, and, and, and she, goes, uh, she goes, some of them were flipping us off, other people were throwing things at us, and, and my wife just goes, you know what, 
I just kind of, I just want to come and apologize um, because I know that some of those people were Christians. And um, so I just wanted to make sure they were treating you okay and with kindness and love. Um, and, she, and then the other girl goes, yeah, you know what? Most of them were very respectful. I had conversations with them and everything else. She goes, good, because you know what? That's not the way we're supposed to do things if, if we've been rude or, um, or anything like that. And, um, and then she told her, she goes, you know, I, I disagree with you. You know, I'm more of a yes on eight person. Um, she goes, cause I'm a Christian. And then this other girl goes, oh, I am too. And, uh, and she goes, and this other girl goes, you know, I just believe that the Bible is defunct in certain areas. And this is, this is the main one. And so my wife answers. She just goes, she goes, you know what? She goes, I had to make a decision a while back as to whether or not I would accept everything the Bible taught. She goes, because if I went with my natural inclination, she goes, I would be a no one eight person. Um, but there's certain times when the Bible disagrees with what I feel naturally. And at those times, I choose still to submit to the Bible. And we can disagree on this, but just want you to know that I care about you. And, and sorry if anyone mistreated you or acted in the wrong way. And just kind of shook her hand and, and walked away. I thought, you know what? That's so cool to just come and say, you know what? We can disagree on things. Um, you don't think the way that I think, and I don't think the way you think, but you know what? I want you to know that I care about you. And somehow in, in the midst of all this craziness, we as believers, we need to keep our heads together and have our peace and continue on our mission of loving people and, and having an impact wherever we go. The series we're starting is, is, is called living a life that matters. It's all about wherever you go, it, it, you ought to matter. Like, like if you moved out of your neighborhoods, it ought to bug everyone in your neighborhood that you're leaving. It shouldn't be a celebration, okay? It, it should be, oh man, why? Because we miss that person. They're such a big part of it. When you leave work, it, it should change things. When you leave the church, it should affect the rest of us because you were such a light here. Man, I, I was, uh, you know, the first service, uh, Scott Simrall was here. Remember Scott and Sandy? They, they were here a long time ago when, when the church first started. Sandy Simrall. There has never been anyone like Sandy. Sandy was one of uh, the ones that helped lead worship here. And, uh, and uh, she was just so different. I mean, you always knew when Sandy was in service. She didn't even have to be singing up here. She could be in the crowd. And as I'm preaching, she's in the back going, amen. Come on, Rev. Come on. You know, and getting me all fired. I mean, you just knew. And she just fired up the whole place. And when she left, man, it left a hole here. When she and her husband went to Arizona and, and, and uh, pastored a church out there, no one's ever been able to replace Sandy. I remember one time she was uh, one of the singers and it was at our 830 service. And we're all worshiping, and she turns around and she stops the band. She's not even in charge, but she didn't care. <laughs> she just stops the band. She stops everyone in the congregation. I'm sitting there going, what is she doing? She goes, no. I know it's early, she goes, but you do not worship my God that way. <laughs> now we're going to start this song over, and you're going to worship my God. You know? <laughs> And I was like, yeah, you know, it was just so cool. No one's made able to pull that off since that, you know, it's just, there was this, no, this reverence. I'm going to give God everything. And just seeing Scott this morning just reminded me, man, there is no one like Sandy Simrall. And, and that's the way we want to be that when we leave a church, you know, it leaves a hole and everyone knew when Sandy left, everyone was bummed when Sandy left. That's the way we want to be. We want to live a life. That leaves an impact, a life that matters. On Thursday, we're going to be doing uh, Sandy's funeral here. Uh, she passed away last week. And, uh, but I tell you, it's going to be an absolute celebration. Because I, I think about how she worshiped here on earth. And I can't even imagine the passion with which she's worshiping God right now in heaven. And the joy that she has. And I love doing these services, honestly. When it's someone you know was the real thing. Someone who gave their whole life for this. Be praying for her family. Be praying because her daughter, her daughter Janelle, who, who lives here in Simi. She went out to Arizona to visit uh, her mom uh, about a week and a half ago. Because her mom was uh, passing. And, 
And when she was in Arizona, she got a phone call that her husband back here in Simi mysteriously died. And so I did, uh, I did his funeral yesterday, and I'll be doing her mom's funeral on Thursday. And so just pray for Janelle and uh, that whole situation. I mean, this is what I'm saying. It seems like everything right now. I'm hearing about more people, you know, ODing or, um, or having aneurysms or just dying or in, in some ways suicides. I mean, everything, random accident, train accident, just it seems like the last couple months, it's just everything is coming together and so many people's lives are falling apart. And that's why I loved Todd's messages the last couple of weeks is because what he got us to do was kind of get out of our world and see the bigger picture and realize there's something bigger. The solution is not God come down and fix this thing for me, but the God is the, 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 the solution is to draw near to God. There's a bigger picture here. And sometimes we, we like to, we, we like to show how God is relevant in the little areas of our lives. And that brings us some peace, but I think it's better most of the time if instead of bringing God down here, we kind of escape our world and go up to where he is and see things from his perspective. And suddenly we have this high, majestic view of God and his love for us. Then suddenly our issues seem irrelevant. It's similar to like in Psalm 73, the psalmist says, gosh, when I tried to figure out what was going on on this earth, he goes, it was oppressive to me. It was bugging me. It's like this huge weight on me. And he goes, it bothered me. He goes, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Because until I escaped my little, you know, microscope world and I went up to him and I saw, okay, now I get it. And suddenly he's at peace because he escaped it all and he drew near to God. Because otherwise, a lot of our little things can become our whole world. Yeah, has that ever happened to you where something so small meant everything to you? You know, like your whole world's going to fall apart. Then later on you go, wow, I can't believe that little thing affected me. But we get that way every day. I can be standing over a putt. <laughs> and whether I make this putt or not, man, it is every, that's all I care about at that moment, right? It doesn't matter. People are going to hell, dying, starving. But I got to make this putt. You know, I'm just so focused and we do that. We get these little things and, and whether it's like, you know what, if the Dow drops tomorrow... That's all that matters. If my stocks go down again, you know, if this proposition passes, you know, if this person gets elected, if I lose my house, if I lose my job, if I don't get that raise, if I lose my 401k, and we everything Suddenly these things become everything to us. And sometimes the best thing we can do is just, you know what, let's, let's take a bigger view of life for a second. Let's, let's get the reality of what God's doing in this world and not think that our little thing is everything. So what I'm going to do today is I'm not even going to look at, at one, one passage. I'm going, to, I'm going to go through the whole Bible, okay? We're going to go through the whole Bible. We'll skip a few parts, but we're going to go through the whole thing this morning because I, I feel like we need to just get back to understanding the reason why we exist, what this whole life is all about. And if we get that big picture, then a lot of these little details that have been burdening us, that have caused us so much anxiety and so much pain, it really will become less and less relevant in light of an amazing God. Genesis 1.1, okay? In the beginning, let's just take a deep breath and realize that there was a time when you did not exist. Okay? It talks about it in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, it says, you were not there. Okay? <laughs> and everything was fine. It was fine without you. So what are you stressed about? Okay? You're not fixing anything. Don't really need you. In the beginning... God was fine. God created the heavens and the earth. There was no heavens. There were no earth. There's no angels to worship him. Yet he was still God on his throne. Okay? And this God begins creating things. He creates a world. 
And he starts creating plants and light and water and land and, and on and on and on, night and day. And every time he created something, he would say this phrase, like he says in verse 10, it says, God saw that it was good. Okay, so God's making stuff. He goes, wow, that's good. And then in verse 31, he says, that was really good. Okay, when he's all done on the sixth day, it says that uh, he saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Okay, why was it very good? God says in uh, Psalm 19, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, he says, you know, you as a human being can just look up at the sky, look at the, you know, look at the clouds and look at the stars, look at the universe through a telescope. And you see, wow, this declares the glory of God. He says in Romans 1.20, he says that ever since he created this world, he says his invisible qualities and God's divine nature could be clearly seen through the things that, that are made so that men are without excuse. He says, God, he says, this world, he goes, I made it in such a way that is so good that no one on this planet, none of these people that I make will have an excuse for disbelieving in me. Because you can just look at the stars and go, shut up. No way. How in the world does this work? How in the world do I just live on this little ball that's the core of this earth is like this magma, lava, fire stuff, and yet the covering is water, and yet it spins, and it's a circle, and it spins, and we don't fly anywhere, and we fly around the sun, and on and on, and then you've got these galaxies that are just going on and on and on and on and on. He says any human being can look around and go, wow, this is good. This is so good. I could sit in that parking lot this morning and I'm just watching the sunrise and going, man, this is amazing. This ball of fire that's 93 million miles away. And I'm just watching it peek over those, those mountains over there right by the Santa Susana Pass and going, wow, that's just nuts. See, God, when he created everything, he goes, wow, this is really good. And this shows off what I can do. It declares my glory. Now, when God was creating things, he, he, he does something different when he creates you and I. When he creates human beings, it's different from the plants, different from the animals. Because in Genesis chapter 1, verse uh, 26, when he makes man, it says, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, remember, this is the beginning Okay, and here's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and going, you know what, let's make man in our image. This is different from the animals. It's different from the plants, different from the water, different from the earth, the stars. Let's make, let's make a being that can actually be an image bearer of us. Let's make these people who can display our attributes like nothing else can. You see, because like a, an orange or an apple is, you know, while it, it, it shows off God's glory, it can't show his love. It can't show his compassion. A chicken can't forgive, you know. It's, it's like you've got all these things that were made. But then he goes, you know, let's, let's, make, let's make man and woman. And it says in verse 27, so God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So he goes, I'm going to make something in my own image. And that's an awesome thought to think that somehow I am made in the image of the creator of that God. Now what happens in Genesis 3 is God tells his creation, okay, here's how I want you to live. I'm going to give you dominion over the fish, over the, the plants, over the ground, everything. You're in control down here because that even shows God. That shows God's power to show, have dominion over everything. And he goes, so you do this. He goes, but don't eat of this tree. So what do they do? They eat of the tree. Now, that was not a surprise to God, Okay. I don't believe, you know, some people say, well, I believe that God doesn't really know what's going to happen. And I go, I don't believe that. He, he wrote what's going to happen right here at the very end. He knows what's going to happen. It's, it's, it's all planned. He didn't go, are you kidding me? I didn't think you'd eat that. You know, it's, it's not like this. 
Like this God who doesn't know the future. He knows everything. And, and in that, he has a plan in motion. Right when that happens, you know, they sin against God. They, you know, while God created them, gave them this wonderful place to live, they rebel against him and they're covered in shame. And what God does right then is he slaughters a couple of animals. And he gets those animal skins and he covers over their shamefulness, covers their nakedness and clothes them with animal skins. And he explains in, uh, in Genesis 3.15, he, he, he says, you know what? He says to the woman that I'm going to put enmity between you and the serpent who deceived you, between your offspring and his. And it's this idea of there was going to come this deliverer. And he gives that prophecy where he says that um, the serpent will strike him on the heel, but he's going to crush his head. Okay, right then sets into this motion, this restoration of God. God saying, no, I created man in my image and I'm going to bring him back to me. I'm going to restore him. I'm going to be the deliverer. He sets an example from the very start of you two screwed up, but I'm going to make up for it. I'm going to atone for your sin. I will cover your nakedness. I will cover your shame. And then the rest of the Bible is about this God saying to mankind, look, I'm going to bring you back to myself. You keep running away from me, but I'm going to pursue you and I'm going to restore. I'm going to restore mankind to myself. He has a, but, but what happens is as he seeks to restore us into right relationship with him, we keep running. People just keep running. But as people keep running, there's always this little remnant of people that keep following God. That God draws to himself and it's his people for his own possession. See, in Genesis chapter 6, you have the story of Noah. Genesis chapter 6, God uses a guy named Noah saying, come on, be reconciled with God. Be reconciled with God. Quit going to your sin. God will forgive you. He'll bring you back. But no one listens. And so that remnant in Noah's day was just Noah and his family. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to destroy mankind. I'm going to start all over with Noah and your family. And then the story goes on. Um, later, he, he takes a man named Abram. He goes, okay, Genesis 12. I'll take this guy, Abram. You know, this, this hundred some years old guy. I'm going to take him. And, and, he, and he says, a miracle is going to happen. Your, your wife's going to bear a child. And through this child, there's going to be, remember that offspring, that, that seed of Eve that I was going to talk about, that I talked about, that was going to crush Satan's head. It's going to come from you. And you're going to be a blessing through your offspring. There's going to be a blessing to the whole world. I'm going to bless Bless your nation so much that everyone's going to see the power of this nation. Go, okay, I want this God. I want this God. This is how God was bringing the people back to him as they kept rebelling, rebelling. And so Abraham and, and uh, uh, Sarah have a child named Isaac. Isaac uh, and uh, Rebecca have a couple kids, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons. And God later changes Jacob's name to Israel. And that's where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. And you remember Joseph. Joseph was the one that was sold into slavery, became like this leader, you know, next to Pharaoh. And he's just this powerful man. But then after he passes, then suddenly the Pharaoh takes over and uh, starts oppressing God's people. The Israelites, he, he, they start oppressing them. And so God sends a deliverer named Moses. And Moses comes and goes, okay, you know what? Let's get back to our God. Let's start following him. You know, he confronts Pharaoh and saying, this God's the real thing. You know, he splits the Red Sea, sends all the plagues. You know the story. He gets them into, um, gets them out of Egypt. And then uh, what do the people do? They start complaining. You know, and God's saying, man, I was going to bring you to my promised land. You know, you're my people. I, I watch what I show you. And they, they don't trust God. And God's going, what more do I need to show you? Man, you guys are hungry. I make bread appear out of nowhere from heaven. And you just pick it up and eat it. You know, you said you want meat. And I have birds come fly over you and you eat them. You know, you, you, know, you get in danger here. You want water. I just, I just touch a rock and water comes flowing through for you. And yet you don't believe in my power. And so he has a whole generation of them die out there in, in the book of Numbers. He's, a whole generation of them dies out for 40 years. They wander around the desert till they die. Because he goes, you know, you don't deserve my promised land. 
And then finally, after that, Joshua leads them in. Joshua, one of the faithful, one of the remnant who believed in God, leads the people into the promised land. And that's where, you know, you get the book of Joshua. And then God sets up judges, you know. And then uh, the people go, well, we don't really like your judges, God. You know, we want a king like everyone else. He goes, okay, whatever. You can have a king. Okay, here's, here's Saul. And here's everything you want. Okay, see where he leads you. Then he has David. Then he has Solomon. And on and on. And during this whole period of Joshua, judges, kings, during this whole time, he sends these people called prophets. Okay? And these prophets, they all had the same message. They said, you guys, draw near to God. He's a good God. He's been after you since the beginning, but you keep running away from him. Look, don't you notice every time you rebel against God and go a different direction, you end up miserable? And then don't you realize that every time we stay close to God and his commands, there's a peace? I I love the way uh, Jeremiah puts it. One of the prophets, Jeremiah, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, he says it so beautifully. He says in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5, God says, What wrong... Did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Verse 7, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. God says, he goes, what happened here? He goes, "I, I wanted to give you the best. He goes, and he goes, what did I do wrong that you guys would run away from me? I give you this beautiful land, and then you come into the land, and you just start sinning like crazy. You care less about what I did for you. But then he says something so amazing in, in chapter 3, in verse 12. He says, return. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Then verse 19. I said how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. God says, you know what I thought? You know, maybe I was crazy, but I thought, okay, if I give you the most beautiful land on earth and just blow your minds with this incredible surrounding. He goes, I thought in my mind that maybe you would look at that and go, oh, daddy. And just never leave me and see how good I was. He goes, but instead of doing that, you're like a wife who's unfaithful and is running off looking at other guys. And he goes, man, I would have forgiven you. All I want to do was give you the best. So all this is going on. The prophets are, are screaming out the same message from the beginning of time. Draw near to God. He's a good God. He wants to restore, he wants to restore mankind to himself. Man, doesn't any, are, do we have any takers of people that just want to be with God? And then, then, after all that, God sends his son, Jesus. He goes, I'll send my son, Jesus. And Jesus sums it up really well. He always seems to do that. In Matthew 21, he tells this parable that just kind of describes the whole Old Testament and what was going on right then, up to that point. In, in Matthew chapter 21, he tells this story, he tells this parable. And he says this, Matthew 21, verse 33. He goes, there was a master. There's a master of a house who planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it. He dug a wine press in it. He built a tower and he leased it to tenants and he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed the other and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what's he going to do to those tenants? Okay, he, he gives this parable. He goes, man, he goes, Israel, what's going on with you guys? 
My father, the master, he's been sending messenger after messenger after messenger. And all you do is beat up the messengers and kill them. So now finally he sends his son thinking, well, you'll listen to the son of God, your creator. But what do you do? You're going to kill him too. And he goes, what do you think he's going to do when he comes back? What do you think is going to happen when the ma- What would you do if you were that master? You were that owner. What would you do to your little plot of land and to those tenants who keep beating up your messengers and then kill your son? It was a, it was a voice of warning. Because this was the climax of it all. Okay, you, you, you've, had, you, you've had creation screaming out to you. You've had Noah. You've had Moses. You had the prophets screaming out to you. Now you've got the Son of God coming screaming out to you. And God's saying, I'm going to do the ultimate. I'm going to show you. I'm going to demonstrate my love to this world. Okay, I've been pursuing you, pursuing you, pursuing you. And I showed you from the beginning that there was going to be coming this deliverer who would cover your sins. Well, here he is. And he's going to die on a cross for you. Okay, what else can I do? I gave you the land. I gave you my love. I gave you my prophets. And now I give you my son. And it's crazy what happens when Jesus is on the earth. Jesus, he goes, look, even if you don't believe these words that I'm saying, he goes, if you think I'm full of it, he goes, at least look at the miracles. Look at what I'm doing. Have you ever seen anyone do miracles like this? But remember what the people did when, when Jesus, remember when in, in John 9, when he heals the guy who was born blind, what do the religious leaders do? They call that guy who was born blind and they start questioning him, go, tell us the truth. What really happened to you? This guy's going, what are you talking about? I don't know. Okay. All I know is all my life. I couldn't see now I can. Okay. I, what do you want me to say? And then, you know, what's crazy is you have in John chapter 11, you have that amazing miracle where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And all these people start believing because they were at Lazarus's funeral. They saw his dead body. They saw him wrapped up and thrown into the tomb. And he was in there for days. Then suddenly Jesus comes along and says, come forth, Lazarus. And he walks out of the grave and all these people just, they all die. You know, they're just falling out. What are, are you kidding me? What just happened here? And they start following. But what it says in John chapter 12, the very next chapter, is the religious leaders are so bothered that people are following Jesus because of Lazarus that they plot to kill Lazarus. Let's make him die again, you know, to cover up the evidence. It's just this, we're not going to believe in him. And God just doing all in all. And then when his son dies on the cross and rises from the grave... Still, people refuse to believe and they won't follow. They don't want to come before this God. They don't want to draw near to this God. And so then Jesus, Jesus even says, okay, when I die, he says in John 16, verse 7, he goes, when I go away, I'll, you know what I'll do? I'm going to send a counselor. This is even better. It's better than me even being on the earth. He goes, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 8, he says, when he comes, he's going to convict the whole world. Okay, so they've seen a lot of things externally, but now what's going to happen is somehow internally, God is going to convict the hearts of the whole world. He's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, everyone in this room will know that they have sinned against God. Somehow God is going to make you aware of that. And he's going to convict you of righteousness. That even though you may look at your friends and say, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, I'm really a good person. No, when you're alone, you know that you're not a good person. And you know the things that you've done and you will be convicted of those things. And he says he'll also convict the world of judgment. That you can say, you know, well, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist and I, do, I, don't, I think when I die, it's just going to end. no. He says internally, he's going to let you know that there will be a judgment somehow. That you know you're going to face your maker at the end of your life. That somehow internally there's going to be this witness. And and, and the point is, is that no one's going to have an excuse. But it's crazy because even when the Holy Spirit came... Remember how people responded in Acts chapter 2. Remember the disciples now in Acts chapter 2. Now the Holy Spirit comes and suddenly the disciples, when they're filled with the Spirit, they start speaking different languages. 
languages they had never learned. And suddenly you got people from all around the world showing up in this one spot. And they're hearing these people speak their own native tongue. Going, man, how can he learn that language? How could he be speaking my language right now? And they're speaking all these different languages. And these people from all around the world are understanding them perfectly. But what do some of the others say? Others go, ah, they're just drunk. You know, when I'm drunk, I can speak any language I want. You, you know, isn't it weird how that happens? But, but here's that whole thing. It's just this, this whole idea of no matter what God does, people are going to reject him. He goes, you, you, want, you want the flood? You want uh, me to part the Red Sea? You want me to send your, my son? You want him to raise someone from the dead? You want him to heal someone born blind? You want him to rise from the grave? You want me to send my Holy Spirit to convict your heart? You want, you want to see the power of my Holy Spirit? Have him speaking in different languages? And people will just keep suppressing, suppressing, suppressing the truth. And, and God says, man, don't you understand, he says in Romans 2, verses 4 and 5. He goes, don't you understand that my patience and my kindness is running out? And, and that my kindness was supposed to lead you to repentance? I mean, he goes, I thought if I were kind to you and showed you all this stuff, and I was patient with all your sin, that by doing that, that that would lead you to turn toward me. He goes, but because you're not turning to me, and you're still doing your little thing in your little world... He goes, you're storing up wrath for yourself. He says something similar in, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, he says, the Lord's not being slow. Because people go, well, how come he hasn't returned yet? How come this? How come that? Maybe this whole thing's a lie. Maybe Jesus really isn't going to return. And what he says in 2 Peter 3, he says, the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You understand that? Again, this is God's desire. You think God wants to judge the world? You think he, he looks forward to punishing? He goes, it's, it's not God's desire. He doesn't want you to just perish. He gives you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. But he also says, look, it's going to run out at some point. And for those who keep rejecting, rejecting, rejecting and running away from me, he goes, they're just storing up wrath. Because the next verse, he says, he goes, but the day of the Lord, he goes, you think it's been forever since Christ came. He goes, but you understand the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. And the heavens are going to pass away with the roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He goes, there's going to come a day when I will show exactly how much you rebelled against me. I, I had a Bible, Bible college professor who used, to always said, who used to always say, for those who go to hell, they will have worked hard to get there. They will have spent a lifetime of rejecting God's pursuit of them in different ways. And that will be exposed at the end. It's not like they're going to go, hey, this isn't fair. It's going to be like, yeah, I kept pushing this God away. And there were signs all through my life. Not only was there the obvious sign of God's creation and how I could see him and everything that was made but also the testimony of Scripture. You'll remember this day when you heard it all. You'll remember the messages you heard about Jesus. And even though you didn't understand it all, you're like, man, there's something there. You'll remember the conviction you felt about your own sin and your lack of righteousness, even though you told all your friends how good of a person you were. You know the secrets. And I don't know all the consequences of your life, but I've had friends where I go, man, I mean, you've had dreams, you've had visions, you've had people telling you these things. I mean, everything comes together and you just keep living your own life and God saying, draw near, draw near. And you just keep pushing them away. And so finally, at the end of it, he goes, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. And then you get to the book of Revelation, which I believe we're real close to. You know, it's just... I've never seen the world more set up for this than it is right now. And you get to the book of Revelation and God, God doesn't make empty threats. You know how sometimes as parents we make empty threats and then our kids don't listen to us, you know? It's like, yeah, you're just bluffing again. You know, but you give them these warnings and then you don't really follow through. But um, God doesn't do that. 
And he says, no, I really am going to destroy the world. I really am going to wipe out. You, you remember what I did with Noah and how I said, hey, a flood's coming, a flood's coming, and no one really believed it? He goes, then what I do? I brought the flood. He goes, in the same way, I'm saying, you know what? The end is coming. The end is coming. And it's going to happen. And in Revelation chapter 6, he starts pouring out his wrath. And uh, in verse 15, it says, The kings of the earth and the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So as God starts pouring out his wrath on mankind, now you see people, he goes, the rich, the generals, the leaders, the presidents, the actors, the actresses, the athletes. The attractive, they're all screaming, you know what, I wish this mountain would just fall on top of me because I can't handle his wrath anymore. But an amazing thing goes on as God keeps pouring his wrath out on mankind. In chapter 9 it says, they refuse to repent. They refuse to turn. Even after seeing this, they go, we're still not going to follow you. In fact, what's crazy is in chapter 16, verse 20, 21, he starts pouring out these hailstones on people. I mean, just all these catastrophes happening. But in verse 21 of chapter 16, it says they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So even as God's doing this, these people are shaking their fists, flipping him off, saying, you can't do this to me. And it just shows this mankind and his rebellion going, man, I am not going to submit to you. It is not fair what you're doing to this earth. It is not fair for you to destroy us. We are good people on and on and on, all the way till the end. And then finally, it ends with chapter 21. In chapter 21, It says this, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they'll be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I'll give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God says, you know what? I've had this plan to restore this portion of mankind for my glory. And at the end, they're going to see the result of their faithfulness and their courage and their willingness to stand when it was tough. And I'm going to have this new existence with them. This is what I created man to do. And they're going to be my children. I'm going to be their God. I'm going to be right there with them. It's not that I'm going to be this God that you have to pray to out there. You're going to be right there with me, and I'm going to rule. I'm going to wipe every tear away from your eyes. There's going to be no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. That was God's intention from the beginning, that he will bring to fruition. He goes, write this down, because this is so true. This is trustworthy. You can count on it. It's going to happen. 
God created this world and he said it was good. He created mankind. We rebelled and he says, I will bring you back to me. While many will run away, there will always be a remnant. There will always be this group, whether it's Noah or Moses or Joshua, Peter, James, John, and some of you in this room. He goes, I'm going to bring you back to myself because you believe in me. It's an amazing picture that we're a part of. And now my whole existence, the whole reason why I exist, the Bible says, is because God gave me the ministry of reconciliation. You know, Paul says, knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. My whole, the whole reason why I exist is to try to persuade you the same way Noah did, the same way Jeremiah did, the same way Jesus did, the same way Peter did. And say, draw near to God. What more could you ask? A God who gave his son to pay for your sins and yet you're going to embrace your sins rather than him? Draw near to him. That's why we exist. I'm a part of something far bigger. And so if you hear all of this, what God has done for you, and your biggest worry tomorrow is your 401k, I go, you don't get it. We're a part of something so much bigger, so much greater A God who's redeeming us for his own glory. (laughs) I'm going to have the worship team come up. And and we're just going to spend some time worshiping him for what he's done for us. Taking our minds off everything else because this is the picture that matters. And if at this time you just feel like, well, I've never, I've been rejecting God. I've been rejecting. I've been one that he's been patient with. And he just, he's given me sign after sign, friend after friend, message after message. And you keep pushing him, pushing him, pushing away. But now you see the big picture and you go, you know what? I don't want to push him away forever. Because I see the end. And I want to be a part of that remnant. If that's you, you can come forward. Pray with someone. Get baptized today. Or maybe some of you, you've been in your own little world and looking at this little thing and you've just lost sight of what life is all about. And you've lost all your joy, all your peace because you're looking at this one little picture and maybe you see something bigger now. I hope you do. And if that's you and you just need some prayer, there'll be some people in the prayer room. But the rest of us, let's just think about what God's done for us. And let's look beyond our little world that's all going to burn anyways. And let's just worship this God.